It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So we're uh, right smack in the middle of a series on Alfred the Great, and I know those of you that are here in person know that, but there are people, you know, that are tuning into the podcast right now, and they have no idea. They're like, what's this? Especially with the name, uh, this one. Could you imagine if you just came across a podcast and saw that name in the podcast? I mean, everything about it just seems sort of uh, strange. And, you know, we're back in, uh, what, 871 AD. Uh, And so, you know, the names back then are a little strange, like Wolf here. Uh, And it's, it's an odd name, and it means... Uh, the name of a king. That actually, that's actually what it, what it means. I, I look it up because I'm fascinated by all these Anglo-Saxon names. I'm like, what does that mean? And uh, this character becomes very, very unique in the flow of the story that we're telling. A lot of what I'm going to be moved by comes from a book called The White Horse King by Dr. Benjamin Merkel, uh, which was given to me by a good friend named Matt Powell. And Matt basically said, you know, the way that the Scottish chiefs influenced you or impacted your life, this book has really impacted mine. And of course, that was enough to get me to read it. And I I don't have a lot of excess reading time. Uh, I love to read, but I spend so much of my time engaged in biblical study that I don't have a lot of time for uh, extra books. And so when I read them, it's usually for a very specific purpose. And for this one, I just, you know, it was too intriguing for me to pass up. And it did turn into uh, then a great justification for me to spend a lot more time uh, on this time period and to dig into it because I encountered something that was very, very significant to me, and that was a parallel. And I'm always looking for those parallels in history with what we're going through now. And uh, what I see in this time period of, of the, this season of the Viking invasion of the island of Britain uh, back in 865 through uh, the early uh, 900s, is I'm seeing a parallel with what is invading our country or North America right now. Ideologically, it's invading. You know, the Vikings we deal with are not the same. They're not uh, you know, humans that are just sort of stomping on our shore out of big long boats you know, with uh, axes. Uh, this is very different of what we're dealing with, but similar nonetheless. When I studied World War II, I saw a parallel. Hitler's ideological invasion. Now, his was a combination of ideology Uh, and it was a combination with military force. And so in our day and age, we haven't seen the military force amped up, but at the same time, that can, this can, everything that's happening can precipitate into that because ultimately when people begin to stand against it, like, no, I will not submit to that, then you need to make a choice. How are you going to make them submit? And usually that leads to military force. And so this time period is very, very significant because we have this character in the midst of it, which we have not spent a tremendous amount of time on. We've spent a, a tremendous amount of time around him. And, but we had, you know, last Friday, we, we began to dig into his life at least a little more. And when you're dealing with ancient history, you don't have the type of satisfying studies of someone's life that we could have today. In other words, where it's just like, hey, I want to study this guy. I want to know what he's thinking. I want to know what he's feeling. And we don't have all of that. What we have is a storyline, which is quite epic and quite amazing, which is going to lead to him being called the Great, Alfred the Great. When he starts, he doesn't look anything like 
someone who would be called the great. And that's, I think, inspiring to me as well, that what leads this man to be great are a whole bunch of little small maneuvers of his soul. He is going to make choice after choice after choice, and he's not going to start with some profound victory. He's going to start with loss, 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 humiliation, loss, and loss. And yet he's going to continue to persevere. There is a, a story of uh, an ancient uh, king named Tamerlane who is going to uh, be hiding in a cave, and he is going to be sort of at his last, uh, the last wits, his last point of willingness to fight and to stand. And he's feeling very defeated. But he has a responsibility, as does every king, to continue to stand and to defend unto his last drop of blood. And yet he's just lacking that the oomph. And I don't know if you've ever felt that. In other words, you have a similar responsibility, and that is to persevere to the end. And yet sometimes you come to that point where you feel depleted. And Tamerlane, in his hideout, in his, I, I, I can't remember if it was a little shack or if it was a cave, I, th I think it's a cave, he's going to watch an ant grab this uh, piece of corn, this kernel of corn, and try and carry it up a, the wall of the cave to some destination. And the poor ant is going to make it, you know, part way up, almost all the way up, and then drop it. And, the, you know, the, the corn will sort of bounce across to the other side of the cave. And so he watches this ant go back down, pick up that kernel of corn, and then carry it back up. And I want to say 99 times he watches him do it. What was it, 69? Yeah, that's right. It was the 69th. 68 times, and then he, on the 69th, it, 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 he, he's victorious and brings it up. And that was like all Tamerlane needed to see. He's like, all right, if that crazy ant can do it, I can persevere. This is only like the third time uh, for me. Let's go. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. We need that fresh infusion of hope even in the midst of darkness. Because right now, the devil's whispering, there's no hope, there's no hope, there's no hope. And what's needed is for that resolve, that ant-like resolve, to just growl inside to say, but I refuse to quit. So the betrayal of warfare. <clears throat> so we're going to dig a little into this idea of the oath and the pledge, which is to the ancient Anglo-Saxon a very, very key part of their society. And so I'm going to skip ahead to a part of Alfred's life that you don't know anything about yet and you're technically not supposed to know about. But when he is forming the society that we're gonna understand is England, he is going to do something and that's what this is, okay? So this isn't a spoiler, this is just showing you something which will make even more sense as we go back in the storyline to where we're at. So this is the cornerstone of Anglo-Saxon society and honor, which is the oath and the pledge. So Dr. Merkel says, when the king of Wessex turned to listing the actual laws of the Dombach. I haven't explained what the Dombach is, but it's the laws of the land. He began with the commandment he considered to be most necessary for every Anglo-Saxon man to keep, a law that proved to be fundamental to the preservation of English society. Alfred insisted that every Anglo-Saxon man keep his oaths and pledges. Now, if you were going to say, say you got handed a kingship and you're like, whoa, how did I get this? And someone were to say, now, what's the most important thing in your kingdom? What is the most important basic law that is going to hold everything together in your kingdom? I don't think most of us are going to land there, at least in initially or immediately, any more than when 
God comes to Solomon in the dream and says, ask. Ask for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. That most of us don't start with wisdom as our request. And yet, after you think it through, you're like, you know what? That's a really good request. Instead of a prohibition of murder, treason, or some other heinous crime, the king saw oath-breaking as the greatest threat to the endurance of his kingdom. Although this prioritization of the keeping of oaths may seem strange to the modern mind, to the Anglo-Saxon it was clear that keeping one's word stood at the foundation of a civilized society. And actually, if you start thinking about it, you begin to realize that loyalty and trust, if you're going to have a civilized society, you need to know that you can trust your neighbor. You're going to need to know that they have your back. You need to know that when they say one thing, they mean it. It's a very interesting concept. We call it integrity. But this oath-keeping, it's a fascinating way of saying it. Dr. Merkel continues, the significance of a man being faithful to his word was not just apparent in confrontations with other nations. It was essential for preserving domestic peace as well. In the courts of Alfred's day, guilt or innocence was not determined by the presentation of evidence and witnesses. So if Eric Ludi was charged with something, it's not just that you know, we have a whole bunch of witnesses that say, he's guilty, he's guilty. I saw him do this, I saw him do this. It's the exact opposite. It was like this inverted culture. Listen to this. Instead, the accused needed only to produce a certain number of oath helpers, men willing to swear alongside the defendant that he was innocent of the charges brought against him. The significance... Oh, sorry. This may seem naive, since it would seem easy for a guilty man to find several friends to come and swear an oath to his innocence. By giving so much weight to truthfulness in oath-making, however, Alfred helped to ensure that no man could break his oath without dire consequences. If a man was found to have sworn falsely, he would be ostracized from society, losing his right to weapons, to property, and even to testify to his own innocence in court. Thus, the men of Alfred's day took great care to ensure that they did not make careless oaths or pledges. So if you, you want to tell a lie and you want to swear falsely, you know, go ahead and do it. You just need to know that there's dire consequences. You're going to be ostracized from all society. You have no more right to own land. You, you know, it's like no one's going to hire you. It's like, could you imagine? It's like, that's a pretty serious consequence, which what, is, what does it do? It causes people to inwardly reflect upon every word they say is this true? It's interesting because we live in such a lackadaisical society, which is the precise opposite of that. Who cares if it's true? I mean, that doesn't have anything to do with it today. Truthfulness is not a mandate in our culture. You don't get ostracized because you lie. You get elected. The shield wall, the ultimate picture of oath-keeping in action. Sorry, the of is missing. Okay, so the shield wall, it's, I've hinted towards it that we're going to address the shield wall, but the shield wall is like the main military device. When they went to battle, this wasn't the feudal style where they all stand shoulder to shoulder and <laughs> this is a shield wall uh, system that is going to come from the Greek hoplites all the way through to this day. It's an ancient system that they're still utilizing, and it's very fascinating because it's based on a premise of oath-keeping. And so that's what's so interesting is the entire culture, including their military, is based upon this idea of when you say your yes, you keep your yes. When you say a no, you keep your no. 
So Dr. Merkel continues, even as early as the time of Alfred, the shield wall was already considered an ancient tactic, hearkening all the way back to the ancient Greek hoplites of the 7th century BC. It consisted simply of a line of men standing shoulder to shoulder with their shields overlapping one another, forming a continuous wall of protection. This line of shields was supported by a depth of approximately 10 ranks of additional soldiers positioned behind the front line, leaning into the front rank to allow them to hold their ground and stay locked together, not unlike a rugby scrum. So it really helps if you're Australian or New Zealand or, you know, you at least know what rugby is. We don't usually do that here. But it's a very tight thing where the guys in the, the 10 lines behind are supporting the frontliners. And if a frontliner goes down, the guy that's second in line immediately is going to take that position because they have to keep the integrity of the shield wall. This tight formation had the potential to be virtually impenetrable, provided that the courage and endurance of the soldiers held. A well-formed shield wall was virtually impenetrable so long as the wall held together. If a gap could be cut into the wall, then the enemy would pour through the line and attack from behind where the wall was vulnerable. Once a hole was cut into the shield wall, even if just for a moment, the sudden attack of enemy soldiers from behind made it impossible to keep the formation together. The shield wall would be abandoned quickly and general chaos would ensue. When a shield wall did fail, it was almost inevitably, listen to this, not from the power of the attacking army, but from cowardice in the ranks of the shield wall. If a man ripped himself from the wall and turned to run, it would trigger a chain reaction in all those around him and the entire wall would dissolve in seconds. One man running from fear was far more damaging to the integrity of the wall than 20 men falling from stab wounds. And so it shows, and that's why I'm saying, this is the basis of what they're going to call oath-keeping. It's not the term we would use. We would call it integrity. We would talk, call it bravery or courage in this situation. But it's keeping to your word. If that's your position, you hold your position. Until when? Until you die. <laughs> there isn't a, an, an option of like, uh, you know, till you get tired, do I part? No, till death do you part. This is a covenantal bond between the soldiers. And I need to know that the guy to my right and the guy to his right and the guy to his right are going to keep their position because my life depends upon it. My other thanes, their lives depend upon it. So as a result, I need to trust the men around me. Dr. Merkel continues, the movements of the shield wall were not coordinated from afar. Generals could not sit at a safe distance from the conflict, sending messengers into the fray with orders for troop movements and changes of tactics. After the command to form the shield wall had been given, the only leadership the soldiers required was the leadership of example. Isn't that a great line? The leadership of example. So what's Alfred going to do? He is going to be a part of the front line of the shield wall. The hardest spot in battle he is going to put himself into. And that is a very odd thing in history for us to, to, to look upon. Because he's the most important person in their culture and he's going to hold it together. But that's what inspires his thanes at either side to stand with him because he is leading by example. Of course, what an incredible picture of David in battle. What an incredible picture of Jesus in battle. He is literally going to be at the front of the shield wall. The commander joined his men standing shoulder to shoulder with them throughout the gruesome conflict. So this is a simple principle that is sort of I'm building. Now the word thane that you're going to see in this title 
T-H-E-G-N. I've explained it in previous uh, episodes, but it is that loyal, covenant, covenanted supporter of the king. So they're going to be the, uh, the they're going to have an earldom uh, in the in the kingdom, which is, means they're going to be entrusted with like one of these zones or the uh, the shires, and they're going to be over this and be responsible for its protection and for the cultivation of its military, for the cultivation of its economy. And so he is going to, the king is going to entrust his nation to the thanes. And the thanes are going to be the ones that are going to wear a ring. They're going to have a ring given them by the king. And so he's the ring giver. They're the ring wearers. And that ring is going to be a symbol of a binding covenant that they have that if the king ever needs them, they're there. If they ever need the king, the king is there. They have each other's back. So a loyal thane would never run from the shield wall. And so as you grow up in this Anglo-Saxon world, that's just part and parcel of it. The shope, when he sings his minstrel songs in the meat hall, he's making that very clear to everyone. This is deeply baked in. This is part of their value system, is that the thane never leaves the shield wall. It is far more noble to die uh, you know, holding your shield than it is to run. To run is the highest level of shame. And so I have a sub-statement underneath it. Such a betrayal would be unspeakable in and amongst the Saxons. It's hard, the more you study it, it's hard to get the right words because to say it's unspeakable, I use that a couple times in this message, it's unspeakable to do this. <laughs> it's like, how else do you describe it? It's not even something that people would talk about. No, we don't even mention that. It, it's not even a possibility because anyone who has done it in the past, I mean, they're like the greatest criminals in our society. It's sort of like, well, that's what Judas would do. I mean, that's what Ahithophel did to David. I mean, that's what Benedict Arnold did to uh, the Americans during the revolution. It's like, oh, you don't ever want to be that. That is the worst of crimes you could ever do in the Anglo-Saxon culture. So let's catch up with our story. The last place we left it was uh, in 871, and uh, Ethelred, uh, Alfred's brother, has passed away. So that, uh, his mom has passed away. His, his older brother passed away when he was five, who was the heir to the throne. His dad, Ethelwolf, passed away, and all of his older uh, brothers have now passed away. So he had four older brothers. He is unlikely to be king because of that. It's a highly irregular situation where the fifth uh, son of a king becomes king because usually at a certain point, one of the older brothers is going to grow up and his son is going to be old enough to take on the kingship. But because of the dire situation in which they're in, everyone agrees, all the wise counsel agrees, it can't go to the younger son of Ethelred, who was very young at the time. It needs to go to a man that the nation can follow into battle. And so as a result, Alfred is uh, the obvious choice. And so Alfred is going to take this very difficult position. And it's really a position that no one would want. And so we, we left off in 871. I'll just catch us up pretty quickly here. So there's a loss, which we started with, the Battle of Reading, uh, and there's going to be a loss, and then we're going to have a victory. Remember Ashdown? They're like, yeah, and then eight consecutive losses. Boy, that's a rough way to start. You see, one of the reasons is the military system of, the, uh, of, the, the, this, of all of Great Britain, uh, well, no, it's not great at the time, of Britain, is going to be faulty. It's based on what's called a FIRD system. I know, I don't want to introduce a new word to you, F-Y-R-D. But a FIRD system is based on the, the system of the earls, the earldoms, 
that, so say you have 10 earldoms in a nation in Wessex, right? So these are the thanes that are gonna rule over this territory. So when there is an attack, what you do is you get in touch with all your earls. I don't know if you put someone on horseback with you know, one of those uh, messengers and they go and they tell the guy, we have an invasion in such and such a province at this place, gather your men. And so then the earls are responsible for their furred and their furred are all the farmers or all the laborers, all the men in that territory, the fighting age men. And then he calls them and he gathers them together. And so then each, uh, zone, each province is doing this, and they gather their men together, and, they, and it takes a couple weeks. It takes a long time to get all the men together. When you get them together, you have around 10,000 men in Wessex. That's pretty impressive, especially when the Vikings are coming in with 3,000. Problem is, the Vikings move like lightning. They don't need to call up a furd. They just fight, and so as a result, they get in, get out with their plunder, and uh, do their nasty stuff, and long before Alfred can even come close, Alfred has a hundred-man standing army with him. Hundred. Okay, so these are loyal soldiers, but a hundred men can't do much. And so as a result, Alfred is feeling the weakness of the system that he's inherited. And one of the things I love about Alfred is he doesn't just sit there and go, well, this is the system I inherited. I guess I'll just try and make do. He's like, let's fix it. This thing stinks. You guys gave me a broken down automobile. How about we get a new engine in it? In other words, that's exactly what Alfred's going to do. He's going to reinvent the military system of Wessex. <clears throat> but because of this, there's a growing despair in Wessex. Dr. Merkel continues, it was difficult at this time for Alfred to imagine how his people could continue resisting these relentless invaders. Despite how grim things may have seemed for the people of Wessex, it likely would have been surprising to them to discover that the Viking kings were growing frustrated and impatient with their own progress. So as unable as, as Alfred was to push them out, every other battle the Vikings had had was easy. And the first time they'd ever experienced the fact that they can't just take over a nation was Wessex. So Alfred was a pain in the neck to these guys. The resistance of all the other Saxon kingdoms had crumbled quickly after one decisive battle. No Saxon kingdom had put up anywhere near the resistance that Wessex had. Even when Wessex lost a battle, it did so at such a great cost to the Viking numbers that in the end, the Viking victory was negligible. The bait of the Danegeld. Say it isn't so, Alfred. So this is hard to acknowledge when you're trying to build up the case for the wonder and the, you know, the the strength of a, of a great man in history, it's always tough to have to share their weaknesses. But there's something about showing weakness that is important, I think, for us to not just humanize uh, someone who did well in their lifetime, but to show that they're made of the same stuff and they reason through the same types of things that we do. Alfred is in a desperate situation, and I'll explain that, but the Danegeld, for those of you that haven't caught the previous episodes, is like a payoff. And this is what the Vikings thrived off of. What they wanted to do was create enough crisis where they wouldn't have to go and claim the wealth through murder and all that. They could just be given the wealth of a nation. So they come in and they threaten, and they, you know, they give all their bluster and their hot air, and then the nation goes, oh, instead of fighting, we'll pay you a whole bunch of money. And that was the Danegeld. Okay, so Alfred, don't do this. Don't you know the, the poem from uh, Rudyard Kipling that he's going to write in about a thousand years? It says, don't pay the Danegeld. Uh, he hadn't read that, obviously. 
Dr. Merkel says, the Danes had grown anxious to find a more profitable prey, a people who would surrender their wealth more eagerly. And so shortly after the Battle of Wilton, the Vikings settled on a deal with Alfred to end their occupation of Wessex. The accounts of this arrangement give no details and say only that Alfred made peace with the Vikings on condition that they would move on. The Viking army happily received the offer of Danegeld, prompt, promptly abandoned their fortress at Reading and withdrew to Mercy in London, weighed down with the wealth of Wessex as they traveled. It's just sort of sad, and there's a lot more to this, actually. The, even the people of Wessex are going to be... Alfred could not take care of it out of his own purse. He did not have the ability. This is a huge amount of money. So he had to actually create a tax. He taxed everything in, in, his, uh, in his nation. And his nation is now reeling with thinness because they've given the wealth of their nation to the Vikings and the Vikings just go to the, uh, you know, the, the adjoining nation of Mercia. That's the next place they go. They're just right across the border there with all the wealth of Wessex. You can just imagine the emotion in this. Paying the Danegeld never buys more than short-term peace. The payment reveals a weakness, a willingness to give up wealth without a fight. And like the scent of blood to sharks, this message could do nothing other than attract future Viking attacks. Is that a foreshadow or what? So King Burgred is the king of Mercia. So if I had a map of uh, the island of Britain, it would be right above Wessex. Wessex would be in the bottom uh, of the island, and Mercia is right in the middle. And King Burgred's double Dangeld. Isn't that, isn't that a fun title for it? It sounds like it should be a nursery rhyme. Alfred paid Halfdan. So Halfdan, who's the son of, I always like to want to call, call him Harry Breaches, but Ragnar, uh, is the one who has been wreaking havoc in these, all these losses uh, of uh, Alfred's. Uh, and so Halfdan is the guy that he's going to go up into Mercia now. So it says, Alfred paid Halfdan a gigantic Danegeld to leave Wessex. Halfdan went straight into Mercia and demanded a huge payment from King Burgred. He paid it. And then Halfdan went to the other side of Mercia and demanded yet another Danegeld payment to fully leave. You see, one of the things you're going to notice about the Vikings is they don't keep their word. And the people of Anglo-Saxon uh, mentality don't understand people that don't keep their word. When you give an oath, you keep it. And why they would presume the Vikings would have the same mentality you know, is going to come as a shock to them. So Burgred is going to pay the wealth of his kingdom, and then they're going to go to the other side of Mercia, and they're going to camp out. He's like, hey, I told you, you, you promised you would leave. Oh, we will leave if you give us another Danegeld. And so as a result, Burgred is ultimately going to lose all power because of this. Because talk about smelling you know, the scent of weakness. The Vikings are going to recognize this guy's a pushover. He'll do whatever we ask him to. Let's ask him for as many Danegelds as we want then. So Dr. Merkel says, not surprisingly, Burgred's attempts at conciliation only hastened the end of his reign. Rather than gratefully receiving Burgred's desperate offers of friendship and peace, the Danes sensed profound weakness in the Mercian king, a weakness that begged to be exploited. So at this point in the story, uh, Halfdan is going to go up to Northumbria, which is the northern sector of the island, and he is going to sort of set up his reign. And so he's going to divide up the kingdom with his, to his Danes uh, and to his loyal thanes, if you want to say it that way. It's not the term they would use for the Vikings. And they're going to sort of set up shop. Meanwhile, Guthrum, and I've foreshadowed that Guthrum would be mentioned. This is an introduction to Guthrum. It's not a message on Guthrum. But Guthrum is 
the most evil guy we've run into yet. This guy is bad news, okay? So he's going to take over, and he is going to go into East Anglia. Remember uh, King Edmund's old kingdom? Uh, and he's going to take that afresh, and he's going to be eyeing this uh, nation of Wessex. He's just mad that the Vikings haven't been able to take it. So he's going to begin to plot, and he's going to become a very big foe for quite a long portion of the story. So Guthrum, a new level of insidious in 876. So remember, we were in 871. That Danegeld payment bought Alfred five years, which I know some of us are thinking, that worked. And yet the point of a Danegeld is to recognize it's a postponement of something. Now, if Alfred has been able to marshal his forces together and actually build his military in those five years, you could actually say that Danegeld was brilliant. However, what's going to be proven is that his system hasn't yet come into a place of maturity. So this guy is an oath breaker of epic proportions. So he's entering into a society where oath keeping is the highest value. And he is an oath breaker of the highest levels. So this is just an overview. Guthrum seizes Wareham in Wessex. So that's a town in Wessex, a stronghold in Wessex. And Alfred's military response takes team takes too long to respond. So even though he's had five years to build up his military, it's too slow. And as a result, Guthrum already has control. Guthrum breathes fire and threats. In other words, I have thousands of men that are about to arrive on the shores. Are you sure you want to play this game, Alfred? You want to fight me? Or do you want to pay? And so Alfred oh, pays the Danegeld again. I mean, he's falling for the game of the Vikings. You ever felt this in your spiritual life? where you feel like you're playing the devil's game, even though you know you shouldn't. It's just like, I, I don't know, I'm desperate right now. Alfred asked to, so this is Alfred's thought. It's like, okay, I'm going to pay the Danegeld, but the, you guys told me you weren't going to come back, and now you're back. So here's what we can do. Let's exchange hostages. I'll give you some of my loyal thanes. You give me some of your loyal thanes. I'm putting quotes around thanes because that's not what they call them uh, amongst the Danes. And yet, because to Alfred, that's a symbol. In other words, I will not harm your, your things. I'll keep my part of this oath. You keep your part. If I violate mine, you can kill my men. If you violate yours, I can harm your men. And to an Anglo-Saxon, that makes total sense. You know, that's like, hey, that's honor. And then he asks him to do something extreme because he's trying to figure out, he recognizes that these Vikings keep breaking their oaths. But maybe it's because as a Christian, their oaths are based on the knowledge of God. So he says, well, since they follow Thor uh, and believe in Thor, he'll make him swear on Thor. <laughs> and he didn't realize at the time that that means nothing to the Vikings. So Guthrum's certainly like, sure, I'll, I'll swear on Thor. So what does Guthrum immediately do? But Guthrum brutally kills the hostages, Alfred's thanes. That's like what he does, and then he moves to a different location in Wessex. It's like the violation is so high. I mean, Alfred can hardly even believe it. It's like, you've got to be kidding. I didn't just pay the Danegeld, but I put together a whole system of trust that would keep accountability, and he's mocking it. He literally just killed his thanes. Guthrum leaves Wareham and takes another Wessex stronghold, which was called Exeter. And right at this point, everything is looking very, very dark. And there are 120 longboats that are coming in full of 3,600 Vikings. And this storm hits them. And 3,600 Vikings arrive 
uh, in Viking longboats, and it appears all that is all is over. But a storm strikes on the ocean, and utterly destroys 100 Viking Viking ships, 120 Viking ships, and every one of them is killed. And so as a result, Guthrum now is in a vulnerable position because he's like all excited. You know, he's at Exeter. He's like, hey, we're going to take it to them. But he has violated his oath, right? And now he's in sort of an awkward place. So Guthrum is now desperate once again and negotiates peace terms with Alfred. Guthrum leaves for Mercia. So this has all happened in 876. But listen to this. Within a few short months of leaving Exeter, Guthrum had his army fully reinforced, and despite the wintry season, drove south bent on conquest. Moving swiftly and completely unnoticed, Guthrum crossed the border of Wessex, breaking his vows of peace to Alfred at Exeter, and marched straight to Chippenham and straight toward Alfred. He has one thing in mind. He doesn't care about killing one other Anglo-Saxon. He wants Alfred beheaded. This guy is the problem, right here. This guy. Every other uh, king in this island is a pushover. This guy needs to go. If we got rid of Alfred, we take this whole island. And so Guthrum is just breathing fire. He is so, and he wants to take him, so he picks a very specific day, a high and holy day, uh, to the Anglo-Saxons, since they're Christians. He's going to pick the celebration of Christmas. That's actually what he's going to do, and he knows that all of them are going to be celebrating. And you can just imagine, if it's Christmas Day, this isn't Christmas Day, this, but this is a, is a very significant day to them. And if it was Christmas Day, you're not going to have your same guard up. It's like, who's going to, who's going to want to fight on Christmas? This time, Guthrum was not searching for a quick and easy raiding target, nor was he looking for a chance to draw the Wessex army out into the open battle. This time, Guthrum aimed straight for Alfred, planning to decapitate the king in the hopes that, this, that without the powerful and unifying figure of Alfred, the kingdom would much more easily capitulate to Guthrum's rule. Guthrum's attack was timed to coincide with the holiday of Twelfth Night, which was January 6th, just 12 days after Christmas, uh, taking advantage of the distraction that the festivities of the holiday provided. Twelfth night was the culmination of the Christmas season, a season that started with solemn reflection and prayer on Christmas Day, and then slowly grew in mirth and merriment during the following 12 days, until the twelfth night. So if mirth and merriment is increasing, you could just imagine. Uh, we're on the twelfth night, the eve of Epiphany, when the entire season ended with a great feast and much drinking of wassail. I don't know that I can describe wassail. It just sort of means something like very happy. Uh, so you could just imagine uh, what's in it. <clears throat> it was a night of feasting and gift giving. It was to be celebrated by king and by peasant. No one was to be excluded. It was a night when, as a result of the Wessex merrymaking, the fortifications of Chippenham were left virtually unguarded, a moment well chosen by Guthrum. Oh, no. Wolfare. How does he play into this? So Wolfare is one of Alfred's most trusted thanes, entrusted with the ring of authority over Wiltshire. So Chippenham, which is the sort of like the estate of Alfred, it's one of his royal estates, that's where he's celebrating the 12th night, and that's where he is. So the protection of this is entrusted to Wolfare. He's over that territory. So this is his job as a thane. <clears throat> So Dr. Merkel says, caught by surprise and possessing a, possessing a force too small to withstand a full Viking raiding army, the citizens of Chippenham were easily overrun. The astonished Alfred was forced to retreat from Chippenham with his family and bodyguards to the countryside of Wiltshire until he could summon the Ferds and face Guthrum in combat. 
but Guthrum moved too quickly. After seizing Chippenham, the Vikings convinced the Erdelman of Wiltshire, Erdelman Wolfare, to break his allegiance to Alfred and pledge his loyalty to Guthrum. Wait, that, no, 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 no. That, that's not going to happen. Wolfare will never do that. He's a, he is part of the shield wall of Alfred. He would never, he, would, he has a pledge to Alfred. He wears his ring. He would never do that. The betrayal of Wolfare. It's one thing for Guthrum to betray his word. He's a pagan Viking. For a Saxon thane to do so, to betray his king, his brother, his friend, into the hands of evil, there's my word, it's unthinkable. It's like no words to describe it. Wolfare wouldn't do that. Wolfare is the one who is entrusted with the protection of Alfred. He's also the one that would call up the Ferd of Wiltshire. And he's the one that would take the message, whether it's on horseback, however they get it, to the other earldoms to raise up their Ferds. But guess what? If Wolfare goes down, he's the main contact for it all, which means Guthrum would rule over all of Wessex without even a fight because he has Wolfare. And strangely enough, that's exactly what happens. So Mer Dr. Merkel says, once Wolfare had gone over to Guthrum, Alfred was cut off from the ordinary means of summoning the Wiltshire Ferd to battle, leaving Alfred defenseless. Many other nobles of Wessex immediately sensed the impending annihilation of the last Saxon kingdom, so they followed the opportunistic example of Wolfare, betraying their king and taking oaths of submission to Guthrum. Others, sensing the impossibility of the situation, took their cue from Burgred, remember he was the king of Mercia, the Mercian king, and fled to the European continent for refuge. It seemed inevitable that Wiltshire, Somerset, and Hampshire would soon be ravaged by the Viking invaders. So you can sort of feel it. Okay, when I say that this is not altogether dissimilar from our times, when you sense an invasion of the enemy and the enemy comes in with his Guthrum-like bravado, it is very easy for someone who has made commitments and made strong statements like Peter, I will never die, oh, I'm sorry, I will never deny you, remember, remember uh, Peter? And Jesus says, you know, when the cock, before the cock crows three times, you'll deny me, three times. Uh, and so what we see is a similar type of bravado where these thanes, when tested, are actually going to begin to melt. They're going to think about themselves. It's like the crack in the shield wall. Once Wolfare creates a crack, everyone else starts running. And it's the same principle of the shield wall that we're going to see right here. The breaking of the oath is actually going to break the country. And it's going to shatter uh, the stronghold of Wessex. The leadership of Wessex was in total disarray, leaving Alfred without any of the necessary means of communication to summon the Ferds of Wessex. Guthrum, without even fighting one pitched battle, had become the effective ruler of Wessex, and Alfred was forced to take his small group of faithful followers much deeper into hiding until a plan for striking back could be formed. The following days would be the darkest Alfred would face, the true low point of his reign. So the reason I've even built it up to this point, here we are in episode eight, is to show you the impossibility of the situation. First of all, you need to know the strength of the Vikings. You need to see how, just glimpse how palpably strong the Viking presence seems to be on this island. And the only group that had been willing to stand against it now seems to have lost. And Alfred is in hiding with his family and bodyguards. 
Okay, what are you supposed to do? He has no ability to call forth his furs. His military system is completely cut off from him. He can't communicate with them. It's not like he had a secret cell phone that he could communicate with them on. He, as far as they know, he could be dead. How in the world is he supposed to gather together the strength of a nation that is now being dominated and bullied by Vikings? This is a dark situation. Every time as a leader I sort of examine it, I'm thinking, oh boy. And I, then my next question is, what are you going to do, Eric? I don't know. I mean, I'm really struggling for an answer here. <laughs> One thing I do know, in any situation as a leader, when you get to that point where it seems impossible, you have to remember the God of the impossible. And you have to remember that he is the one that must do it. If Alfred is going to dig in his own pockets right now and say, what do I have to give? He's going to fall short because he doesn't have the ability to overcome in this situation. But he does believe in God. And he does believe that God is righteous and just. And he does believe that God desires to do good for his people. And so how you work through this is a challenging one. Many of us in America even, right now as we've seen the invasion of the Viking ideology, if you will, into our world, have felt a similar paralysis where we feel like we're cut off from the FERD system. We feel like the normal systems of defenses, like obviously our constitution will defend us right now. And the, the judicial system would stand up and it would do something, right? I mean, that, that would happen. And then you feel like it's not happening. And well, at least the Supreme Court will stand in this situation and they would do something. And then you start to get this sense of aloneness. <laughs> you start to recognize that your confidences in the systems of men are failing. What does that ripen you for? To put your confidences afresh in the systems of God. Because when the systems of men, like when you run out of finances, what do you have? You don't have finances to lean on. So you have God to lean on. When you run out of health, what do you have? Well, you don't have health to lean on. What do you have? You have God to lean on. You see, when God empties our pantry in any way, shape, or form, it actually is a wonderful opportunity for us to cultivate faith. Do you believe that your God is who he says he is? The mechanics of betrayal. You see, when you hear a story like Wolf Air, you hear the story of the Thanes, when you read the story of Ahithophel uh, in the Old Testament, siding with Absalom instead of David, and he was like, David trusted Ahithophel. Ahithophel should know. I mean, out of, out of all the men to do this, I mean, that was an incredible blow to David. Not just his son, but his most trusted advisor is going to go over with Absalom. And then you're going to see the Judas crisis. And you know the same night that Judas is going to do what he does? Peter is going to deny Christ with an oath. And so what you see is the tensions of these great kings throughout history is very interesting how they parallel. And oftentimes that lowest point is what leads to what we could call the resurrection of the kingdom. And you're going to see it paralleled here. You're going to see the resurrection of the kingdom of Wessex flow out of this dark night, this extraordinarily uh, difficult time where it looks like all is lost and all is dead. So when you see it, though, I don't know about you, but all I want to say is, God, please start now. Do whatever you need to do. I don't want to be warfare. I don't want to betray my king. I don't want to be the chink in the shield wall. Lord, 
is there something that can be done now inside of me to fortify me so that I am not a warfare in history? That's the last thing I want to be. I don't want to be the Judas in the story. I do not want to be the Ahithophel. I don't want to be the Brutus uh, in the story. I do not want to be the Benedict Arnold. Lord, what needs to take place? So I'm going to give you a, a principle, almost like a proverb here, and that is big betrayals are built on the shoulders of a hundred small ones. See, when, when we live our life, we are making conscious decisions all day long. And oftentimes we'll make small commitments, and I'm not saying to other people, like, hey, I'll pay you back that $10, okay? And then, then it's, or, or I'll pay you back that, you know, by this afternoon. Well, then do it. And do it by this afternoon. And if you can't, if something's standing in the way, get in touch with them and say, hey, look, I can't get over there. Can I get it to you in the morning? At least communicate. Come on. I mean, you're dealing with your word. Your word is out there, and it matters. And those things aren't huge betrayals, it's, it's not big, it's small. And when you familiarize your soul with small, we're going to call them betrayals, what you do is you set your soul up in the time of crisis to give way. It's almost like you've been chipping away at the dam in small ways. It's just a little chip. I'm just taking my hammer out and chipping a little into the, into the dam. The dam's still standing, but then when the big thrust against the dam comes, it gives way because you've been chipping away at it. Big betrayals are, the, are made up of the small decisions in our life. And so when you communicate with yourself, like, I'm going to get up in the morning at such and such a time. I know this sounds strange, but keep your word. And you're like, well, it doesn't affect anyone. It does affect someone, and that's you. And it does affect the king that you're supposed to get up and meet. In other words, it is a relational thing, whether you understand that or not, and you're setting a pattern in place, which the way to deal with that is to correct the pattern and repent and begin to keep your word to yourself even. So when you say, all right, here's, how, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how we're going to do this. Why are you even making those decisions? Because you're seeing clearly. And so as a result, when you make a resolve, it's the equivalent of me saying, I'll get you that $10 this afternoon. Then do it. You must keep a consistency in your soul to keep your word. And I know it sounds strange because it doesn't affect anyone, does it? It does. Wolfare's small decisions are going to lead to a very big decision which will affect an entire nation. Judas's small decisions of how he was handling that money bag are going to lead to a huge issue that is going to affect all of history. And so as a result, those small decisions matter. Achan's small decision to take a little bit from, Babel, or from Babylon, from Jericho, and stick it under his tent is going to affect the entire nation, and they're going to lose in the Battle of Ai. In other words, whoa, that didn't affect just him. It affected everyone. And we need to recognize that the decisions we're making affect our body. This is a shield wall. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ. And we must maintain that integrity as individuals. I can't force you to be courageous. I can't force you to keep standing but I want to exhort you to do it because you not continuing in, in your stance and your loyalty will affect me. And I could go down. And the other things that I may love could go down because of one person's instability. So there's a, a thing that we've repeated many times. I don't know if 
have we mentioned it this semester yet? Seven steps upward, seven steps downward. So John and Betty Stam had this. I think they got it from uh, Hudson Taylor. But it's basically a statement of there are seven steps upward. The highest step is heaven. Like if you just live in this direction, keep going up these stairs, you end up you know, with him for all eternity. And there's seven steps downward. The, the bottom step is hell. Okay? It's like, which way do you want to go? Well, none of us in here are like, hey, I'd like to go to hell. Okay, no, none of us want to get on that step uh, downward. However, the first step downward when you study that is so intriguing. And look at my subtitle here. It says, the first step downward may seem small, but the fact that it is downward is the problem. Listen to what it is. To take sin lightly. It's like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. That's the first step to hell right there. <laughs> the term that they use is to trifle with sin. Ah, eh, it's not that big of a deal. To take it lightly is the first sign of deterioration in our life. To take it seriously is the first step upward. To say Jesus died because sin was so serious. I'm going to take it serious in my life. I'm not just going to sit by passively and let it do what it wants to do. I'm going to take it seriously. That's the first step upward to heaven. So you see that decision with the small things in our life actually is a massive issue that leads to either loyalty or betrayal. None of us want to set ourselves up to be the guy that is the coward in the prison cell that like, confesses and gives the whereabouts to all the other Christians. You know, that isn't the character we want to be in history. And yet, if you don't want to be that character, choose to follow Christ in the small ways now because we're actually preparing for those tests with how we live our life right now. If you don't want to go down in history with the wolfares, Start taking the small stuff seriously. Don't justify the little compromises. So there's so many different things. For instance, some of us, it's appetite and it's food. And you have your little small commitments like, you know what? I'm not going to eat that anymore. I'm going to stay away from that. And the next day is like, hey, it's not that big of a deal. Okay, those types of things, I want you to recognize that when you do something that you know you ought not to do, it actually violates your soul. Just like Guthrum violating his oath. It's like, oh, you pay me the Dane Geld and I'll come right back at you anyways and ask for another Dane Geld. You see, that's a violation. And the way we're made up is to stay consistent. So when we have a clear sense of what we ought to do, what should we do? We should do that. And it's oftentimes the most trivial little things. They're small little things that awaken greater propensities in us. So a, someone who is going to cheat on their spouse it doesn't just happen where that's the first action in their soul. It's like, you know what? They wake up one day, I'm going to cheat on my spouse. It is a result of a lot of smaller compromises. It's, whether it's the glance of the eye, whether it's the cultivation of a thought that they didn't kick out, whether it's the fostering of emotion that they have always said no to. Now it's like they're going to welcome it. And when you start to welcome things that you know you shouldn't, what you're doing is you're setting your life up to be a wolfare which is not what we want, is it? And so that's one of the reasons why these startling stories of like Ananias and Sapphira in the Bible strike us and they strike fear, but the fear of God in us, that's actually what came over the church when they fell down dead. It's like, dear Lord, is there any of that in me? And we, when we watch the story of Ananias and Sapphira, watch it, when we read it, what do we feel? We feel very akin to Ananias and Sapphira. Why do I feel far more like Ananias and Sapphira than Peter in the story? It's like, whoa! We have a propensity and we recognize that. It doesn't mean we cultivate it. 
The fact that we have a vulnerability towards firstborn behavior, towards welfare-like behavior, does not mean that we say yes to it. We can acknowledge that the law of gravity is there, but we are submitting to the law of aerodynamics, which flies in the midst of gravity. Monitoring the integrity of your alone life. Even when no one can see it, keep your word to your king. How you live in your alone life is ultimately what's going to define if you're going to be a loyal thane or an unfaithful thane. You see, every single one of us desires, no one sets out to be a Judas. No one does. It's like, I would like to follow Jesus only to betray him. No, that's not how a Judas was thinking. We can start out with genuine desire, but we can allow a turning inside of us because there is a real enemy that wants to see weakness. Guthrum is looking to turn welfare. Guthrum is very smart. He knows he can take over this kingdom, not by killing welfare, because then another welfare rises up, but by turning welfare. And the same is true with us. He wants to turn us subtly and to justify. It's just one step downward. And guess what? You could be king. I'll put you over this kingdom. You can just hear the negotiations. It's just like, hey, you work with me, I'll give you power. First of all, I'll cut you into small pieces if you don't. And I'll cut your family in small pieces. This is your family? Nice looking mom. Nice looking mom. Okay, nice looking mom. <laughs> nice looking wife you have there. How would you feel if I cut her into small pieces too? Or you could be king of Wessex. I'll let you be under me and I'll let you run things around here my way. We'll give you some comforts. We'll give you some dainties. Your choice. You see, if you have a purchase price and Guthrum shows up, you're a goner. You have to practice that integrity of soul long before Guthrum arrives, which starts in the small things of our lives right now. So I'm just going to finish with some unique quotes that I think will stir us up. Dr. Merkel, and this has already been said, but I'm going to amplify it a little. If a man was found to have broken oath or pledge or sworn falsely, he would be ostracized from society, losing his right to weapons, to property, and even to testify to his own innocence in court. Thus, the men of Alfred's day took great care to ensure that they did not make careless oaths or pledges. The things that are taking place in our life, let's weigh them. Let's have that startle to our soul afresh to recognize that the small things matter, the small thoughts matter, the small movements of our soul matter. The numerous landowning noblemen of Wessex, the earldom or eldermen who commanded the loyalty of the local farmers and craftsmen of the individual shires held the ferd together. So remember, Wolfare is one of these. These eldermen ruled the shires on the king's behalf, enforcing the rule of law, ensuring that taxes were gathered, and preparing the shires to defend themselves in case of attack. Each elderman had the ability to summon a ferd from his shire, a force numbering up to several thousand men. Then when a national emergency arose, the king could call his eldermen along with their shire ferds, creating one large national ferd, numbering as many as 10,000 men. The ferd system totally depended on the corresponding obligations of a man to his lord and the lord back to his subjects. These simple instincts, the faithfulness to a master and the love for a people forged a strong and compelling bond that time and again held the warriors of Wessex together in the clash of the shield walls. The Wessex line now required endurance. This is going back to, I think, Ashdown. That is a great quote. The Wessex line now required endurance and discipline to hold together throughout this cruel battle, bloody battle of attrition. 
As each warrior fell, his place had to be filled quickly and willingly by the man standing immediately behind him. We are a shield wall. And the loyalty amongst us, the affection amongst us is the symbol to the outside world. Our love for one another is the symbol of our discipleship in Christ. And so as a result, to learn to live together, to have our shields overlap, to stand together knowing that this is needed in all of us. This isn't just needed in Eric or someone else. This is all of us. It's not just a leader that is responsible to have this sense of integrity. It is all of us. A moment's hesitation, a moment of considering what price might be paid for filling that gap, and a hole was left open for a horde of Vikings to pour through the shield wall, ending the battle. And once a man took a position in the front rank, there could be no turning back. He was woven into a shield of, wall of shields that utterly depended on his constant struggle to hold the line together. Whew, that's pretty intense. And finally, Hebrews 10, 38 through 39. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back. We are not of those who run like cowards from the shield wall. Isn't that an interesting statement? See, this isn't what our new DNA in the kingdom of heaven is. God is rewiring us. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Father, we look to you because we feel the vulnerability of a warfare. Each one of us is made of clay. It's not solid stuff. It's vulnerable. But Lord, you, you have everything we need. You are the God who fortifies and builds strong his saints. And Lord, we ask that you would grant us that grace that strength, that hardiness of soul, and may we practice it now and grow it up to a maturity so that when Guthrum comes and stares us down with his threats, I pray, Lord Jesus, we would be ready to speak the words of truth in response. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.